You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. So, we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 12, and speaking about this shift and this idea of race, faith, and community. I think this passage just, (laughs) there's too much in it. There's just way too much in it. Don't worry, I'm not, well... How can I go longer than I already do in these messages? So, um, but I've tried to hone it and kind of focus, so we're not going to cover everything this passage says. It's something I think for you to study and just kind of simmer in. Just let it kind of simmer in and let the Holy Spirit have his work. It's uh, his full work in you through these words. So let's read Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Wow. (laughs) Such appropriate words for today, uh, for now, for any time, really, for the people of God. And something that we, I think, need to aspire to live for. Now, many people believe in God in our world, and many people in the United States believe God loves them, and they trust in God, and yet their lives are still focused on themselves, and they're anxious and fearful, just like the rest of the population who doesn't have faith in God. Now, we know our faith should make a difference, a big difference. It should make us more humble, more courageous, more accepting of others, less anxious, more focused on others rather than just on ourselves. But just having beliefs up here, having them in our head, doesn't seem to change our thoughts or our actions or our attitudes or behaviors. Despite what you may believe, I still keep myself very me-focused. I'm still self-centered. You know, my faith is going on and it's just all revolving around me yet. And that's the shift we're trying to talk about today. Now, what's honestly I found throughout the New Testament, when I've studied the New Testament myself, when I've heard commentaries on the New Testament, you will not find this individual focus that we have in our society right now. Not at all. You just won't. Americans read their Bible very individualistically. They think, I could just read this, and this is speaking just to me, but it's really never just speaking to you. It's always speaking to you and the people of God together. You just won't find this individualized focus on the New Testament. And the problem starts 
with our English translations because in English, we really cannot differentiate between the second person pronoun singular, you, and the plural second person pronoun, you. And so when I read a you in the Bible, I think it's all about me. When often in the Bible, that you is about, well, in Southern, y'all or all y'all even better. Almost all of the yous in the New Testament when Jesus is speaking or when um, the New Testament writers are writing to churches are all you all passages, not individual you do this, but you all together. For instance, the Sermon on the Mount is a great example of this. When Jesus spoke that sermon, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, And he says different words. He never says you individually are the light of the world. He says y'all all together are the light of the world. Or y'all are the salt of the earth. Or you all are to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So the real intention of Jesus in that sermon is not to tell you about your individual ethics and what you might do. But how we as a community of followers of Jesus reflect a whole different ethic, a whole different way, a countercultural way of being in the world. It's about us together, not just me. It's about we not me. So today we're going to look at this passage in Romans chapter 12, starting at verse 9. And it's really not about me. It's about we and how the focus needs to focus on us together. The all y'all. Maybe we should have a Southern translation of the Bible. It might come across better. So in our thoughts, we're going to focus around these three points. The shift to a new family. Then a shift to the new community, to the community. And finally, the ultimate shift, the power to have that ultimate shift. Okay? So the shift to a new family. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 12 at the beginning. He said, did you notice? He uses the word love. Um, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Now, what's fascinating in the Greek, there are four different words for love, not just one as in English. And Paul uses three of those words in this one short passage. The first word he uses is let love be genuine is the word agape. That is kind of a love that God has for us. Um, The focus of agape love is not on the object of love, but on the lover, him or herself, and how that person loves despite not finding anything in the love e, the one receiving that love, anything worthy. That's why often agape is used in the New Testament for the love of God, because God loves and creates that which is lovable in us. He doesn't find anything wonderful about me in the way I act, no, but... I am loved by God because of how great his love is for me, for you, for us. That's agape. The second word that Paul uses in this text is Philadelphia. Huh. Sounds like, oh, a city maybe? Because philos is brotherly love. Adelphos is the brother. And so it's the idea of having a friendship love of brothers, just like the word Philadelphia, brotherly love. And that is kind of a love that is... um, that happens as a result of 
finding a common interest, like we both love to, oh, I don't know, skateboard, right? And so this morning, we've got Tyler and Hunter here, and they were talking for about 10 minutes about going together because they both found a common interest. And often in friendships, there's a common interest. And then we go, wow, that's great. We both love this thing. Let's do it. And we become close friends. That's Philadelphia. The third word is the one we're going to focus a little more on because it's one I don't usually focus on, and that is philostorge. It means kind of having a family stick-to-it love. No matter who's in your family, you stick to it and you stick with them. Now, C.S. Lewis wrote this book. It's a worthy read, by the way. It's called The Four Loves. And in it, he describes the four Greek words. Now, we've talked about three of them. The fourth one that he brings up in that is eros, and that is the romantic attraction love. You find something in the lovey that is attracted to you. And most, most of our cultures talk about love and song and poetry starts with eros, with attraction. I'm in love with you. I fall in love. And we kind of miss the other loves altogether. But Paul talks here to a diverse church, a church of Gentiles and Jews and different ethnicities and languages in Rome, in one of the most multicultural, interracial places on earth, kind of the center of the Roman Empire. And Paul says that they are to have a philostorge or storgoi kind of love for one another. Now, there was an early church critic, someone who did not, who looked at the church Christians from afar about 100 years after Jesus. His name is Lucian of Samosata, and he wrote um, a number of works sarcastically parodying Christianity and ripping it apart. And one of his great criticisms of the church, he wrote in a letter uh, uh, in the death of Peregrine, this work that he wrote, and he says this, it was impressed on them by their original lawgiver, that would be Jesus, that they are all brothers. From the moment that they are converted and they deny the gods of Greece and worship the crucified sage and live after his laws, all this they take quite in faith with the result that they despise all worldly goods alike, regarding them merely as common property. So the great criticism that Lucian of Samosata had was how radically different the Christians were to one another, that they gave up all their other relations, or that they, were, they created new relations of a new family in such a way that not only did they call each other brothers and sisters, they lived it out, and they considered anything they had to be owned by the family, and to be used by the family, it was all common property. This was a hundred years after Jesus. Now, I'm not saying our church today has actually actualized this, but I am saying the early church did for at least a hundred years after Jesus, and it shocked the world. And that's what Paul is getting at in this text when he says to have a philostorgoi, a common love for each other that is a stick-to-it family kind of love. We're going to look at those three marks of what a new family shift, a shift to a new family looks like, and they are these, that it is inclusive, that it is open, and that it is vulnerable. 
So what do I mean by inclusive? Now, basically, you've heard it said that you can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family, right? That's what's behind that word philostorgoi. You don't audition for the family. Say, hey, can I be a part of this family? God calls us his family. C.S. Lewis, in this book, The Four Loves, puts it this way. He says, storgoi is indeed the least discriminating of loves. Almost anyone can become an object of affection, the ugly, the stupid, even the exasperating. There need be no apparent fitness between those whom it unites. It ignores the barriers of age, sex, class, and education. It can exist between a clever young man from the university and an old nurse, though their minds inhabit different worlds. That's why this kind of love that Paul is saying the church is to have for one another in a very diverse place in a very diverse church. That's why I've always struggled with some of the proposals that came out of what was called the church growth movement in the 1980s and 90s, where you try to find an affinity to other people and you bring what's called a homogeneous unit principle together. You find and you create groups for men and women and teens and this group and that group, the knitting club and the bowling club. And and everybody just finds some little niche and then you gather together around that and grow your church. But quite frankly, too many people have been using that as they look around at churches. We've talked about consumerism last week, and so it's like I go to a church and try to find my niche, and I start interviewing churches kind of like I would interview, you know, is this a good fit for me? Do they have what I need? Are there people like me here? In fact, I have heard... Um, numerous times about Thrive or any other church I've been in. You know, uh, John, I really like your church, but I'm looking for, and you can fill in the blank with a singles group or a young women's group or a men's group or a biker group or a youth group or a group of young families or a group that, of people just like me. And there is some strength to that, and I understand that, but there is even more strength, Paul would say to finding a group of diverse people that have nothing in common with you, that are very different from you, and hanging out with them, period, because they are your family. We can take it one step further, you know? We as a church don't look when people come in the door of the church when we are open or when we are fellowshipping or when we and go like, oh, that's a good prospect. And that one's not so good. No, that that is terrible. You don't do that to family. You welcome anyone in. We are inclusive. Everyone is welcome. Everyone belongs here at Thrive. That's the way God intended it. And that's how we need to live it out. And we can even take it one step further. There is great strength in having your people, uh, a family of God from different races and ethnicities and ages and occupations and perspectives and even political persuasions and loving them and being family together with them, even when you disagree, because those things are not as important as the one thing behind it. Now, I've repeated this often. And I'm going to use it again. A religious news editor, uh, probably five or six years ago, tweeted out and said, and she said, I have a confession to make. When I enter a church and look around and see these people don't seem to fit together, that they have nothing in common, then I know the church is doing something right. Let that sink in. Families stick together regardless. You just are the family of God. 
And that's why Paul says this as well. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. You might pick your nose, but you don't pick your family. Okay? <laughs> you may pick uh, and choose this and that, but you do not pick who's in the family of God. And God has chosen you. God has chosen everyone here, and God wants to choose everyone and bring them into a fellowship with himself and with his family. And when we are that kind of family of God, man, that's amazing. Not just a few years ago, or excuse me, not just for a few years that you're with a family, or this stage of life, I'm journeying through, the, so this works for me. You are with them forever. By the way, no matter if you're a member of my church here right now, or you've been a member of my church when I was a pastor up in Gainesville or out in California or wherever I've been, you're stuck with me for life because that's what God does. He creates a family, a forever family, and we're all a part of it. That's the storge love, the philostorgoi, where we stick no matter what. It's non-selective. There's no auditioning. It's all-inclusive. Secondly, open. What do I mean by that? You kind of see this in your family, at least some. When you live together in a same household, brothers, sisters, husbands, wives, maybe an extended family, um, how much privacy do you actually have? You know? What happens over a short period of time is you kind of start not treating each other as guests in the house, but as family, and you kind of let your guard down, and you kind of let it all hang out at times. And that's what happens. The boundaries go down. Now, sure, teenagers often want to have some boundaries up. They want to have their privacy. They don't come into my room. Don't expect this. Don't expect that. And, um, but there are even limits to what a teenager or anyone in the household has as their own privacy. And you get to talk about any topic under the sun, and everything, because you're involved in their lives holistically from top to bottom. Another way of saying this is a church is not a club. If you're a member of a bird watching club, let's say, or a book club, if you're a member of an art club, you get together around that one subject. And so you're at a bird watching club. They're going to be talking about the birds and about which bird hunting, uh, bird, not hunting, but bird watching activity you're going to do and where you're going to do it and which ones you've seen, etc. If you go to a book club, you're talking about the book on hand or a book that you've read before, another one you want to read. And if someone comes up to you in a book club and says, hey, excuse me, um, I know, who are you dating? Is, that person isn't any good for you. You'd be shocked and offended, and rightly so, because this club isn't about that. But when you're in a family, everything about you is open. Yeah. And what a family is looking for is your welfare and your benefit and what's best for you holistically, not just in the area of, you know, what career you might follow or this little subject matter, but they're looking at you and loving you and wanting the best for you overall. And so all of a sudden, in this family of God, even pastors, especially probably pastors and others in leadership, need to be held accountable and need to have an openness to correction. 
Let me tell you, there are many times I need it. Many times. That's what it means to be open, that you don't get to pick and choose. There are people in this fellowship that have corrected me and guided me and directed me, and we need to be open to that. Paul says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. That's pretty broad. But that's what we're looking at is trying to say, hey, let's get away from these things. Let's hold on to these things. And so uh, we've got issues to talk about at times. Lovingly, of course. Deeply, though. And there are some changes and shifts that need to take place in my attitudes and my understanding and my perspective because I've got people who are different than me who are speaking into my life. That's the open. And it leads to the third, vulnerable. Paul said it well when he said, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. You know, if you take seriously your relations with your brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ in the family of God, you're going to be vulnerable and open to when they rejoice and celebrate, and you're going to celebrate with them and to their grief and despair and agony, their highs and their lows in life. And you're going to find yourself time and again exhausted, you know, because of your involvement in the emotional depth and lives of other people. Real Christian fellowship is not for the faint of heart. It's tough. And two situations Paul uh, meets, uh, speaks about here, rejoicing and weeping. And I think it could be argued that um, rejoicing with others when they rejoice can be even tougher than weeping with those who weep. Because so often, what happens if someone is celebrating because something great happened to them that didn't happen to me, and how easy is it for me to celebrate their promotions, their goodness, all those things that are happening that I didn't get. Oof, the resentments can be there. And yet Paul calls us to real love and real identification to be able to rejoice with others when they are rejoicing and to weep with others when they are weeping. And think now, right now, in the United States about the racial divides that we are seeing. Are we rejoicing with our brothers and sisters when they are rejoicing? And are we weeping with our brothers and sisters when they are weeping? And how would they know if we're doing that? By just staying off to the side, not getting involved? Or by engaging and loving and encouraging and being involved when anybody else is struggling? So in these matters, being inclusive, open, and vulnerable, how do you think we're doing as a church? Because they are not about you individually, but all of us together. And how are we doing being a church in Southwest Florida with other brothers and sisters around us? You know, over the um, years, I've talked a lot about home huddles. And it's partly because I don't know how you can have these aspects. You can't necessarily have intimate, deep, and uh, amazingly uh, wonderful relationships with a hundred other people. But you can have a diverse group of six to 12 people that are both influential in your life and you are in theirs, and that you are engaging and praying with them, rejoicing with them, weeping with them, being with them over time. There is something to be said there is something to be said 
to be involved in the lives of others and to understand the all-you-all nature of the body of Christ. Sadly, we know the statistics. Things are going in the other direction in our society. I read in uh, Business Insider just in June, uh, uh, excuse me, July in 2017 said this, in a revealing sociological study, a large percentage of Americans report having shrinking networks and fewer relationships. The average American has only one close confidant. The same study showed, and the leading reason people are seeking counseling now is loneliness. That's the shift, the family shift that we need to do. From me to we. And then it's also a shift not just to those within the people of God, but it's a shift towards the community. Paul brings that up. So the first half of Romans 12 that we read, starting at verse 9, deals with our relationships within the body of Christ. And the second half is dealing with our relationships to those outside of the body of Christ, those in our community who might even be antagonistic towards us, who might even persecute us. You know, honestly, you can find other fellowships, clubs, organizations that have an intimate family feel to them in some ways. There are sororities and fraternities and other social groups and clubs all abounding in our society to where you can feel you belong. But the uniqueness about Christianity is not how we treat one another within, but how we treat those who are not yet in our midst. And now as we live in a very pluralistic society, more pluralistic than ever in America, and now as we live in a more divided society than we have known for generations, there are a lot of people who look at a group like Christianity and say, well, you're just making those truth claims and they're just power trips. They're just claims to try to dominate other people. And I would agree, to an extent, that a lot of truth claims that are being made today are just power trips in one form or another. But what if your truth claim is not about power or about your position in this world or about your dominance? But what if your truth claim is about love? What if the one claim, the one truth claim, that you have is really about grace, undeserved love. Love for the least, love for the last, love for anyone. What if your truth claim is about humility and service and peace and sacrifice? What if the truth claim that you make is about a person who gave up everything, gave up all of his power, all of his privilege, all of his rights, his whole life? And that's the truth behind any other truth you would ever speak. What if that's the case? Because Paul in our text doesn't say, just don't hurt those people out there. Be nice to those people. He says, wish them well, love them, respect them, pray for them. Instead of trying to pay back or take vengeance on in one form or another, you actually benefit them. You sacrifice for them. You give up your, quote, rights and you forgive and do what you can to be at peace and at harmony with this world. And you might be going like, well, who can live that way? Won't you get stepped on a lot? Probably. Who could ever do that? I only know of one. I only know of one. 
And because he did, we are given his ultimate power to make the shift. I don't know if you know that, realize this, but the Bible is not a story of family values. It's not a book of virtues. <laughs> the Bible's a story of family failures and um, how blood and kinship and clanship and tribe and nation have failed and leaders have failed. That's what the Bible is a book of. I mean, it starts out the first family with the first two children, Cain and Abel. Man, we get off to a bad start. Cain kills Abel. And it just goes downhill from there. You know, we get to Abraham and Isaac and Ishmael are antagonistic to each other. And their peoples afterwards are antagonistic. Then uh, Isaac, Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau, who can't get along and are irreconciled for, for decades and are ready to kill each other because of how they steal and how they, you just name the story. And then Jacob has two wives that are sisters who are at rivalries and in competition with each other in the same family. And then their children, you know, Joseph, becomes the prominent, not the oldest, but the prominent kind of snotty nose, know-it-all, who lords it over his brothers and sisters and, uh, and the brothers get together and sell him into slavery. This is just in the first book of the Bible, dysfunctional family from the beginning. And if you want to find archetypal leaders, you know, you can't get higher than King David in the Old Testament. And yet, at the same time, you look at his family and it's falling apart. Brothers killing brothers, other things happening, a whole, you know, coup d'etat trying to be taken place by his own son against him because of the way he treated his son and his family. And when you get to the New Testament, sometimes it doesn't get much better. Mary and Martha, they seem to sort of be in harmony, but they are truly not getting along in the same family. And Jesus had to chide them. And Jesus' most famous story, Luke 15, is the parable of the prodigal son, which is a parable of an entirely dysfunctional uh, brotherly relationship where the older brother can't stand his younger brother and he can't stand his father. Jesus didn't have an easy time with his family either. <laughs> in fact, when he is out doing his public ministry in the Gospel of Mark, his brothers and his mother even think he is totally out of his mind and they want to take him home. They come to him in Mark chapter 3, and he responds to this all and says, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. Now, there's a lot going on in this passage, but one thing he's really saying as well is family fails you. You fail your family. Your bloodline has failed you. Your clan fails you. Your nation fails you. But I am giving you something, and I am creating a family that will not fail you because I will not fail you. Because my blood, my life is going to be given to you. Not an idea, not a plan. Not a suggestion, not a how-to book, but me. I'm going to create this family through my word and how I accomplish it. And that's why the book of Colossians puts it this way. For in him, 
all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. His blood was shed to make you his blood brother and sister. All of God in Christ, all of Christ for you, all of his life given on the cross, all of his blood poured out for you. Even when he was cursed and crushed and bruised, he brings healing and reconciliation. He mends hearts and lives and forgives. Jesus is faithful unto death, and he gives you the crown of life. Now, when Peter um, realized he was following Jesus quite a while and realized what he had all given up, in his own kinship and family and his own occupation as a fisherman and everything else, he kind of comes to Jesus and says, wait a minute, man, we've given up everything to follow you. And Jesus responds this way. He says, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and last first. Jesus admits here, family's tough. It can be tough. Families do fail. And sometimes they even turn on you. You might face persecutions. But he says, you're going to receive in the family of God a hundred times more because you're following me. And someday you will receive eternal life. You've got brothers and sisters here. And the more we make the shift from me to we, the more we make the shift to include anyone and welcome anyone, the more we make the shift to be open and to be teachable and to be accountable to one another, the more we make the shift, you know, the more we make the shift to really love and care and be vulnerable to one another, to rejoice and to celebrate and to grieve with one another and to be open to our brothers and sisters even outside of our fellowship, the more we make that shift, the more we will have this kind of family that Jesus has always intended. He's the one who sticks close to you than any brother on this earth. He is the one who is welcoming you in, who is open to you, who is vulnerable to all of your need, who rejoices with you and weeps with you and is always by your side. That's what real community can look like. You know, it's kind of what we are crying for and fighting for and wanting and needing and our loneliness is screaming out for and the injustices we see in our society. They're all calling for us to actually be the family that God has always intended us to be. Not based on you and me looking alike or thinking alike, but you and me under the cross of Jesus Christ where his blood covers both of us. I think we need this shift more than ever. Why do we settle for so little in Christianity when Jesus gives us this all? Let's pray. Lord God, we um, lift up to you this day 
this need to make this shift. Right now, you know how our nation is hurting. You know the brokenness in our cities. You know the tension and our relationships. You know how power and authority have been used sometimes to hurt rather than heal. We pray, Lord, you bring reconciliation between all antagonistic groups, but that your church shows it more than anywhere else. We pray, Lord God, that you'd bring about a healing and that you would use Thrive as an example of that, that we would um, humbly listen and learn and grow and try to make a difference here in our community in these ways. We pray for your Christian church in general. You know our condition and how so often we're just around people who seem more like us. We are uh, still too afraid of someone who may look different or be different. Help us to include them under your gospel because you do. That's the church that you've intended. Lord God, we pray um, that you would be with all the businesses right now that are still struggling financially and not just in general, but the specific employers and employees and owners, Lord God, that you would bless them and keep them in your care. That you'd be with all of us who have such anxiety and stress right now over the tumult in our society, as well as over the pandemic that we are still in the midst of, Lord. We pray for your protection and healing. Lord, uh, we weep with those who weep and we lift up to you today um, my um, Aunt Ruth's family. Um, as she passed away yesterday, we thank you for a long, good life, how she was involved in evangelism, outreach in her church, how she served so many. We pray for her um, two sons and her daughter specifically and the rest of us cousins who look to Aunt Ruth as a model of the faith, we pray that you would bring your healing there. I lift up to you as well today, Andy Blankenship, as things are getting tougher for her, the pain is still there and she's going through immunotherapy. We pray for your healing, Lord, that the next round of treatment will bring relief from this pain that you give to her, your encouragement and strength and that we can lift her up at these times. Lord, as we... Um, in a few moments after worship, celebrate um, your goodness and grace in the supper that you've given us. We pray, Lord, that you would use that, the gift of yourself in our lives to be reflected in this world in our relationships and our love for one another. Lord, make us a family through pandemic and strife and difficulties and differences of opinion, a family that will stick together no matter what because of the blood of your son, Jesus Christ, who cleanses us all from all sins and makes us that one family. Lord, we want to celebrate and rejoice with those who rejoice today as well. And so we rejoice with uh, Hunter and his birthday today. And uh, we pray that you would bless him and, um, and the life he has before, the new <laughs> wonderful marriage he has. And just celebrate, Lord, the goodness you've given in his life today. Uh, we lift up, Lord, our food drive. We lift up our vacation Bible school. We lift ourselves up to you today, confident that you hear us because of Jesus Christ. And so we say all of these things because we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, one Savior, one Spirit, 
who indwells us all. We thank you, Lord, for that. All this we pray in his name, Jesus. Amen.